Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. Democrats are celebrating Joe Biden's win, but down the ballot, it's a different story. Democrats were hoping to add to their majority in Congress. They ended up losing seats, including two in Florida. The party also lost ground in the state House and Senate, and the Sunshine State's 27 electoral votes are going to Donald Trump. State Representative Anna Escamani of Orlando tweeted this on election night, quote, we need a whole new direction for Florida Dems. We're losing too many incredible down-ballot elected officials and candidates right now, and it's not okay. I know we have the potential to be better and do better. Representative Escamani joins us via Zoom on today's show to talk about the future of Democrats in Florida. Also with us via Zoom is Sabrina Rodriguez. She's a reporter for Politico, and she's covered the party's struggles with Hispanic voters in South Florida. Representative Escamani, I'll just, uh, I'll start with you. Take me back to, feels like a million years ago now, but only been two weeks. Take me back to election night and what was going through your mind as you saw some of these results playing out in Florida and how, how Democrats were faring in, the, in those races. And as we were waiting for our numbers to get back, um, started seeing numbers from across the state. And after we had declared victory in our race, I saw losses across the board, especially in South Florida, where we not only lost uh, legislative seats at a state level, but we lost two congressional seats. And of course, even in counties that went to Joe Biden, um, the down ballot races did not do the same. And so we're actually back in the Florida legislature now with negative five um, House Democrats, bringing us to 42 out of 120 members being Democrat. And then of course, on the Senate side, we, we just learned a um, confirmation after a recount that we lost the Senate seat as well. So really, really frustrating. Of course, one of the highlights was Amendment 2 passing, which is Florida's $15 minimum wage amendment. It passed more than 60% of Floridians supporting it. Um, and so it was an interesting dichotomy because it demonstrated that Floridians support progressive values in, in endorsing and passing Amendment 2, but didn't support candidates that, that align with that mission. So there definitely seemed to be a disconnect of how the Democratic Party and, and other affiliated organizations um, really campaigned their candidates in order to lift up all these votes at the same time. Was it surprising to you that there was that disconnect and that, dis that Democrats fared so poorly? I can't say I was surprised because I've definitely seen a lukewarm attitude towards Amendment 2 by some Democrats. I mean, I'm looking towards, you know, the, the state's one and only elected statewide Democrat, which is Commissioner Agriculture Nikki Freed. It, it was um, pretty clear early on on the campaign trail that she was wavering on her support of Amendment 2 and actually Tampa Bay Times asked her about it. And, um, and she said she wasn't sure she would support it. And it wasn't until there was some online uh, backlash um, from 
from folks like John Morgan and, and like myself and other advocates that she um, put out her own op-ed with a soft endorsement to kind of, you know, repair the damage that's coming from her office. And so it's, it, it wasn't a surprise to me because we saw these patterns. And, and of course, there wasn't any type of anchoring of Amendment 2 around our candidates or a contrast to our opponents. And that's a really important piece of just campaigning is that you always want to give your constituents a contrast. You know, why vote for me over, over your alternative? And I, I think one of the biggest contrasts we missed on was the fact that House Republicans and, and state senators were actively mobilizing against Amendment 2, and that really should have been used as, a, as an easy sticker to associate our opposition with. Meanwhile, the Republican Party called all of us socialists, said that we wanted to fund the police, and also pushed this PPP loan controversy onto us where the Democratic Party here in Florida actually applied for a PPP loan though they returned the money, the damage was done. And it was another illustration of just disconnection of what's actually happening on the ground for Floridians that are suffering through this pandemic. For Sabrina, I want to uh, turn to you now. And uh, some of the things that Representative Escamani brought up, Democratic candidates being called socialists and communists, not having maybe a strong contrast with, uh, with Republican opponents. How did you see that playing out in, in some of the races that you were following and in, in the voters that you talked to? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge part of this election cycle. I mean, the reality is that the Trump administration had four years to really hone in on this messaging. And we saw it, you know, play across the country. I mean, we're talking about you could talk to a white farmer in Iowa and they would tell you that Biden was a socialist, but it didn't have nearly as much resonance as it did in South Florida and in parts of Florida where we're talking about big Latino populations that have fledged socialist regimes that are very intimately aware of what it looks like. And we're, I, I hate to say, but we're fooled into thinking that, you know, the, a Biden administration would look like that, or that if you're voting Democrat, then you must be a socialist or you must support socialism. And the reality is, you know, the Trump administration knew that and focused on that and spent the past four years sending either it was Trump or Pence or administration officials going down to Miami rolling out, you know, a new sanction on Cuba or a new sanction on Venezuela and, you know, giving a big speech about human rights in Latin America and things like that to really solidify support. The big problem we saw with Democrats that on the other hand was, you know, you can't win an election if you show up six months beforehand. And if you don't really invest in canvassing, invest in door to door, invest in like actually showing your face and showing people that, you're not a socialist or showing people that, okay, that's what that guy is saying, but here's who I am and here's what I stand for. And I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of Democrats, especially in South Florida, where there were just major losses right now is saying, maybe we showed up a little too late. Maybe we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't do it right. We thought that, you know, by saying we're not Donald Trump, that was going to be enough. And clearly it wasn't. I also saw I, I saw attempts by the Biden campaign to try to push back on this this narrative that Biden's a socialist. And they, what they tried to do is they tried to have this counterpunch where the Biden campaign tried to tie Donald Trump to some of these strong men like Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, for example, like comparing their, their governing styles. Do you think that that was a really was that an effective kind of counterattack at all? I mean, I think to some extent it it probably had resonance in, in some of the communities we're talking about. I mean, 
you know, one thing is, is Cuban Americans, and it's always the narrative about how Cubans are Republican. I am Cuban. I would like on the record, not every Cuban is a Republican, and not every Cuban will never vote for a Democrat or anything. But if we're going to change historical patterns, you got to give people something to vote about, and you have to show people why they need to feel differently. And there just wasn't that messaging. There just wasn't that strategy. And we saw it more broadly, this is where I, I tie in, not just Cubans, was Trump made gains with non-Cuban Hispanics in Florida. And that is really the story when we talk about because you can expect that Cubans were going to vote in large numbers for Trump. But when you see districts where, you know, there's tons of Venezuelans in South Florida, districts with Nicaraguans, districts with Colombians that made major, you know, Trump made major gains in those areas. So the question there is, were Democrats MIA? Or did Trump's messaging really resonate? And it seems at this point in you know, the post-election analysis that it was a combination of both. So we can talk about maybe the messaging not working, but I think the biggest part of this piece is where were the Democrats? Where were the organizers? Where were the people on the ground really fighting this messaging and showing like, I'm not a socialist boogeyman. I'm actually like a person and I'm not, you know, and I'm not going to, take over the country and make it a socialist country. So that was the dynamic, uh, mostly in South Florida. Representative Escamani, how did you see this kind of play out? You know, uh, there's a lot, so much talk about the I-4 corridor being kind of where the swing voters are in Florida. How did you see this unfolding in races uh, in, in your region of the state? Yeah, it's a really great insight from Sabrina. And I'm like nodding my head here because we saw the same thing in, in Central Florida and in Tampa Bay as well, where there really was, of course, the four years of pushing this socialism rhetoric, you know, onto the people of Florida and, and people across the country. But just the lack of contact to our Spanish-speaking communities, I look to our, towards our campaign. So District 47 was drawn to be a swing seat. And we are majority white. We have a historic Black community in Hannibal Square. And we have a growing Puerto Rican and Venezuelan community on the southeast side of my district. So we were very intentional early on in doing Spanish-speaking outreach. So we had volunteers that spoke Spanish that would build relationships uh, on the campaign trail in that community. We also embarked on Spanish-language commercials, Spanish-language phone bank, and text message campaign. And I have to tell you, the, the most robust text message you know, text bank we had was in Spanish. And I think it was because no one was talking to our Spanish-speaking community except us. You know, a lot of cases, everyone's flooded with text messages, so they're sick and tired of it. We actually got response rates of people asking questions about voting, wanting to know where to go, uh, what the deadlines were. And in a very similar fashion, our Spanish language ad was one of the most popular ones that got the best uh, response and the best contacts, which tells me that it wasn't saturated. The market didn't have a lot of Spanish language content for our constituents where Spanish is their first language. So there is a, a credible point to asking where were democratic organizers and to the points that we're going to make too, it's, you can't just offer the antithesis, you know, saying that Trump is like Maduro is not the same as explaining why you should vote for Biden. It's another effect to inspire folks to vote against someone. Getting back to that, that Spanish language outreach that, that you created, is that something that you had to create yourself or did you get support from the state party or from other organizations for that? Oh, everything was created in-house, yeah, with our campaign. We have some incredible um, supporters and volunteers and staff that are Spanish-speaking as well, and so they were, they were essential 
and helping to translate materials. Um, one of the first things that we did was make sure we had literature both in English and Spanish, just like we did in 2018 as well. I mean, really, it should be a default for every candidate to have materials available in multiple languages. And you know, also in Central Florida, there's a very large um, Haitian community, not so much in my district, but you know, for um, other state house seats throughout South Florida and Central Florida, you also want to have written materials in Creole. And, and I, I've heard a very similar um, feedback from members of the Haitian community that they were left out and that there was little outreach uh, in their spaces and even among Asian American communities too. And there's this, there's a many different cultures use different social media outlets to talk to each other. I know for my family as Iranian Americans, WhatsApp is a very popular um, communication application. So we were hearing stories in the Asian American community of, of memes and other types of you know, virtual propaganda being shared on these spaces. And then the question becomes, how are Democrats combating it? And there really didn't seem to be a, a strategic way to combat any of this misinformation and disinformation. Representative Escamani, when you look at, at, at the transformation in Georgia, where it's now apparent that, that uh, Joe Biden is, is going to win the state, and you look at some of the successes that Democrats have had there, and I I came to Florida from Georgia. I covered the rise of Stacey Abrams in her 2018 gubernatorial campaign, and I got to see some of the work that she did in terms of building up an organization for her, but also building up the state party. Are there lessons from Georgia and from what Stacey Abrams has done there that you think are applicable in Florida? 100%. I mean, in particular, giving the space for Black women and for other people of color to lead. I think is an essential contrast between states like Florida and states like Georgia, where we continue to hire the same consultants uh, for statewide campaigns that do not look like the communities that we are working to, to help and lift up. Um, and, and to that point, they're not working class either. You know, these consultants are, 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 are pretty wealthy. They, they make a great deal of money off the campaign trail. So we're trying to talk to communities that are working class and or communities of color we continue to fail in our ability to do that because we're not hiring people from these communities. Um, in my district, we flipped four precincts this campaign cycle, and we won two precincts that went to Trump. So two precincts that voted 55% for Donald Trump voted for me. And I think that demonstrates that when you focus on issues that impact everyday life, such as the, the challenges of a working class person living in hotels while they can't afford rent or talking about issues like mass incarceration, like good public schools, like uh, the unemployment system. You know, we, we, we draw a rainbow coalition of people because no matter your racial identity, you, you, know, you are impacted by struggle. Every person has struggle. And you really have to be able to go from the wealthiest of living rooms to talk about the quality of life for homeowners when people are speeding on their lake all the way to a lobby of a hotel asking, how can I help pay for people's rent because they can't afford it? And if Democrats can't do that, if we only are trying to appeal to one type of person or we make assumptions that if you're brown, a woman, LGBTQ+, that you're gonna vote Democrat without even earning that support, then we're going to keep losing. And in Georgia, you saw 10 years of organizing rigorous goals, diligent uh, empowerment, le being led by organizations that focus on working class people or focus on communities of color. And whether it's you know, reproductive justice organizations like Sister Song or organizations focused on Latino outreach like Mi Gente, these are all organizations that 
that work together and have worked together for a decade to build what Georgia is seeing. And we have not seen that type of consistent leadership in Florida. Um, and I said, what we've seen is the same folks enriching themselves as consultants off the process while we keep losing races. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We'll take a short break here and resume in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. We're talking about the future of Democrats in Florida with State Representative Anna Escamani of Orlando and Sabrina Rodriguez, a reporter for Politico. Do you think it was possible, getting back to, you were talking about the voting patterns in your district, do you think it was possible there were, there were people who split their ticket who voted for Trump and voted for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a large, large part to our constituent services. The fact that no matter who you are, if you call our office, we'll be there to help. Um, and especially during the pandemic, you know, we use technology as a, as a tool to um, empower people. We posted at this point over 50 virtual events, you know, ranging from weekly office hours on Facebook Live to uh, an eviction workshop, career source workshop to get folks back to work. Um, we've been really intentional in hosting our school board members and talk about reopening of schools, just trying to create forums and opportunities for people to engage with us without a partisan lens, but just to see, hey, I am a Democrat, I'm gonna, I'm going to call out President Trump once in a while, but when it comes to our districts, like our, our interests align and prosperity can be shared by all. Joy should be abundant and safety should be felt in every type of neighborhood. And I think those those consistent practices and values are what drive folks, drove folks in my district to not only vote for for me, but to vote for who they thought was the most authentic option nationally. And I think the one area that President Trump, I'll give him credit for is that he's authentic. You know, he says what he feels. There's no filter as much as that can be disparaging for for many of us. It's also something that folks find appealing. And I think authenticity is definitely lacking in political spaces alongside empathy. Sabrina, anything you want to add here? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that definitely comes to mind a lot, too, is just the money in politics. You know, when we're talking about and, and this, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> this was from a conversation with Representative Eskamani that has me thinking a lot about this recently. And it's just the fact that, you know, organizations across the country spend millions and millions of dollars in Florida. Like it is Florida is definitely not a state that has to worry about not getting attention, um, but it's where are you putting that money that that strikes me. I mean, one of the things with the Florida legislature, for example, was there was a super PAC forward majority that spent millions of dollars. I think ultimately it was about $12 million that they spent in Florida with ads. Clearly, they did not work. <laughs> Clearly, the ads did not have the intended outcome, but I think going forward, it's where do you spend that money and how do you effectively spend that money? Um, because we're talking about, you know, ad spending in Florida broadly is so expensive. And, you know, in Florida, if you were watching TV before the election, you were being flooded with ads. And I think there has to be a questioning now about how effective is that, you know, having ads back to back all day, on Telemundo, is that going to actually win you Latino voters? Is there a better way to do that? Is there what kind of messaging should you have? Do those ads need to be attack ads or do those ads need to be about promoting yourself more? Or should we be talking more about healthcare in those ads or hearing more about the economy? I think there needs to be more of a conversation about how to use that money wisely. 
because we're talking about ultimately hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, a month before the election, we saw that Michael Bloomberg gave said he would spend up to $100 million in the state to help Biden win. Uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and I think the question poses then, you have to pose then is, was the money coming in too late? And was it not being used in the best ways possible? Um, and I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but I just keep thinking about all the money that was spent in this election and how potentially it could be better used in the future because clearly it didn't have the desired outcome. Representative Eskimoni, do you have any thoughts on that, especially that last minute cash injection from, uh, from Michael Bloomberg? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think field. Field is where we definitely could have made a difference with that kind of money to hire um, canvassers from communities that were working to empower um, actually investing in these communities by spending dollars with local radio stations, you know, working with local DJs, um, kind of cut through the crap for lack of a better term, because like Sabrina said, you're saturated by television ads. And, and, and again, I, I, I look back to my experiences and, you know, we increased our victory margin in 2020 compared to 2018 when we flipped our seat. And we spent about $40,000 on digital ads out of my total fundraising budget of about $419,000. And I, it was a really smart investment for us because we heard on the doors, you know, you're the only YouTube ad that I see. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, looking at spending money in a very, at a more local way. And I, I think a combination of field and digital is where it's at, but I'll say that Things like mail and television ads are where consultants make the bulk of their commission. So you do see a lot of campaigns, you know, emphasize these more traditional uh, one-way form of communication versus field, which is more two-way. Even some digital platforms are two-way because somebody can actually click on your ad and then send you a message on your website. So there's more of a connection there. Um, just to wrap up this conversation, we're now looking ahead to the to the 2022 elections here in Florida, which all the statewide races will be on the ballot, uh, including Governor uh, Representative Eskamani. I follow your Twitter feed, and I see where people are very enthusiastic about you running in 22, and you and you retweet them. Is that something that you're interested in? It's definitely something we're very humbled by. You know, I, I never thought I would run for office in the first place as a working class daughter of immigrants. Um, it never came to my mind that someone like me could run for office and flip a legislative seat, let alone um, now have the support to run for governor for the state of Florida. It's definitely something we're also thinking about because of the grassroots energy. Um, and we'll definitely keep folks posted on, on what we decide. You know, ultimately, it's, it's what's best for Florida is what I'm always going to ask myself. And I, I love this state. It's my home state. So we're going to figure out what would be the best direction in 2022. Not, not really for us, but for the state of Florida. Sabrina, what are the, what are the challenges for, for Florida Democrats and, just to be fair, Florida Republicans in, as, as we head toward uh, statewide elections in 2022? Yeah, I mean, well, I think a big part of it is, you know, what are Republicans going to do going forward? So I think a lot of what the Florida Republican Party is going to look like and sound like is going to depend on where Trump figures into this. Or if we're talking about, you know, Trump exiting the scene, uh, Trump's children not being part of the political process, and then are we going to see Senator Marco Rubio try and run again for president? Are we going to see him try and have a bigger national voice? I mean, it's hard not to see that being part of his calculus when he's right now in Georgia trying to help with the Republican, you know, side of, of the election coming up. So I think part of it is 
where is the Republican Party going post-Trump? I think a lot of the speculation is Trump's not going anywhere and this will still be his party going forward, but that's not, you know, 100% at this point. So I think part of it will be, is the Republican Party going to continue the messaging it did effectively from 2016 to 2020? And what is the Democratic Party going to do to engage with voters, to court voters, because one of the big concerns in the state and nationally right now is that a lot of people were drawn out with this whole anti-Trump messaging, with this whole like, vote for me because I'm not Trump, vote for me because you're tired of Trump. And if Trump is not the president, how are you going to get people to go out and vote? How are you going to energize people? And I think that's a big part of this is not just have someone that doesn't like the Republican candidate, have someone that likes the candidate if Biden runs for re-election, but have people actually get up and go to the polls because presumably we will not be in a pandemic anymore and there won't be as much mail-in voting necessarily. But for someone to get up and leave their house and go vote requires, you know, buy-in. And I think part of it is how are both parties going to effectively do that for 2022, especially when it's not top of the ticket anymore, when there's not a presidential election how are statewide candidates going to accomplish that? And I guess, too, it also it matters what happens with the national party. Um, you know, you go back to the Obama era, and a lot of Democrats were, were frustrated that, you know, Obama kind of built his political operation, but the party itself and the DNC kind of withered, and down-ballot uh, Democrats suffered because of that. Yeah, and it'll depend as well on who are the people he puts in position of power. I mean, it's not only Biden, but we're talking about if it's all these little pieces that are now moving and we'll see ultimately in a couple months, but if there is a Senate majority, a Republican Senate majority, that's going to factor into who Biden is picking for his cabinet post because we, people need to get confirmed. Or is he going to have a more progressive cabinet? If you know the Senate were to flip, is he going to have a more moderate one if the majority is ultimately Republicans in the Senate? I mean, all these things will ultimately shape what the messaging looks like nationally and what the messaging looks like in Florida. But I mean, it's no question that in Florida specifically, you know, Democrats need to figure out what next because this can't happen again <laughs> you know to, the, the reality is that 2020 can't happen again to democrats or else we'd be talking about almost no democrats in the florida legislature so i think it's the national conversation and then when we're talking about more local level conversations i mean i know representative Escamani's having conversations with all her colleagues across the state of how can we like fix these individual districts and, and deal with that um and i think part of it too will be redistricting which is its own, you know, mega subject as well, but figuring out how the state is going to fare in that process. Representative Escamani, I do want to come back to you for one last question, kind of building on Sabrina's point. You're in Tallahassee this week. Uh, you're going to be talking with your Democratic colleagues. What do you think needs to change in the state party in Florida in order for you to be more successful in, in 2022? Well, I think for all of us to be more successful in 2022, from top ticket to bottom, there is a requirement for new leadership and and actual values um, within a democratic platform that is brave. You know, a lot of folks call Democrats weak, and and I, I think it has less to do with with partisanship and more to do with the fact that we don't really stand for anything. We're scared to embrace the base and to stand for issues that really do matter for Floridians, like a $15 minimum wage, you know, like uh, recreational cannabis. These are these are issues that have support across the country. We've seen 
in this election cycle, multiple states pass recreational cannabis uh, uh, ballot amendments. We even see, saw in one state a wealth tax passed by the people to pay for public education. So for us to talk about these issues, I think it's going to be important for our party and it will start with new leadership. And right now, the Democratic uh, local DEC, the local party institutions are going to be having their, their elections and that'll then determine who can run for uh, party chair. And so I, I think what you see out of the Democratic Party for the, the next two months really is a lot of internal politics that I encourage folks to get more plugged into because th th these systems should be done in a public way. The, you know, if you're a registered Democrat or care about the Democratic Party, like you should be following these processes, even if you're not a voting member, because um, it matters. It matters for you. It matters for the future of the state. So that's going to be some of the, the newest uh, updates coming out of Democratic circles will be the, who's going to be the next chairperson and potentially next executive director of the party as well. That's State Representative Anna Escamami of Orlando and Sabrina Rodriguez, who is a reporter for Politico. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Today's show was produced by Denora Prevost. If you missed part of the conversation or want to listen again, you can find it at WUSFnews.org. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.